going to hand it over to you as you open up God's Word. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privileges you do give to us to teach and to hear your Word. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us tonight as we think about how we hear sermons, that uh, we may truly be your people with soft and open hearts, moved by your Spirit to be obedient to your Word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's really easy to spend your time uh, evaluating preachers. You know, uh, uh, we're coming to the Olympics again soon, so we'll see those people holding up the, the the marks out of ten that you get. And you feel sometimes that people can do that in terms of their preachers, and say, well, it's a good sermon, bad sermon, but it's it's the preacher's responsibility. But it's a two-way communication preaching, and it's the hearer's responsibility as much as it is the the, spe- the, the speaker's responsibility. And frankly, it's a little easier to preach than it is to listen. Listening is hard work. It really does take concentration, thought as as you're going. Uh, Last Sunday morning I preached here. I got in um, Friday night. I was uh, in complete um, uh, jet lag. Uh, I had a massive headache and I was asleep basically because it was the middle of the night at home when I preached on Sunday morning. So I got no idea what I preached on Sunday morning. I just preached what was ever on the text in front of me and I went back and uh, uh, you, can, you can preach in your sleep. <laughs> right? If you've got a full text in front of you, you can preach in your sleep. I know, last Sunday morning I did it. Uh, but you can't listen in your sleep. Now that's, not a, that's not an option. It actually takes hard work. So it's a very unusual topic, but tonight is the word doing its work how to hear a sermon. And I want to start off, there's a bit of Anglicanism in this talk, uh, just a little bit, not so much as to scare the Baptists off too much amongst us, but there's a little bit. In the Book of Common Prayer, which was written really in 1552, edited from the 1549 one, and then re-edited over the years till 1662, and was the prayer book of Anglicans around the world, until uh, around about the 1960s, except in America where you went for a deviation in the 1870s, I think it was, something like that. Uh, The Book of Common Prayer was written that you will go to church every day, morning and evening. It's written for the village and it's written in an age when people were illiterate. And so they wanted the Bible to get out, so every morning, every evening, Uh, morning prayer, evening prayer as they called it, you go down into the village church and the Bible's read to you. Now, before the Bible's read to you, you you pray uh, and after the Bible's read to you, you pray again, especially for the royal family. They manifestly needed a lot of prayer in those days and still do today. Anyway, we... But it was basically Bible reading. You'd read a chapter of the Old Testament and a chapter of the New Testament You'd read a couple of uh, uh, psalms, there was a selection which are called canticles, and then you would read some psalms themselves. So that by the end of the year, you will have read the whole Old Testament once, the New Testament twice, and the book of Psalms 12 times. That's a lot of Bible reading, isn't it? And that's how the Reformation was put through England. That was the aim of the Reformers, to put the Word of God through the people of England. It was only on Sunday you preached a sermon 
and then you would have the anti-communion, it's the first half of the communion service, and three or four times a year you would have the full communion service. The idea of every week communion service didn't come in until the late end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, the service that was done was every day. But every day the first psalm that was read, and it was read every day, is what I call the Anglican everyday psalm. Because every day of your life you are supposed to hear this psalm. Now, which psalm would you want to hear every day of your life? And why would they set a psalm for every day of your life? It's Psalm 95. It's Psalm 95. In Latin it's called the Venite. Why we'd want to know its Latin name, I have no idea, especially as Venite just means the first word of the psalm, which is O come. However, that's what it's called. I'm reading Psalm 95 for you now, because I'm not sure... Hands up those who have read Psalm 95 today. <laughs> huh? Not a decent Anglican amongst us. Right, there we go. It's the one, it was read every day. Every day of every week of every year for hundreds of years. This is the Anglican psalm. We sing it. Every day? That's so good. Oh come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or as on the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. For forty years I was loathed with that generation and it said they are a people who go astray in their heart for they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest." Now why do we sing that every day or say that every day? Is it a call to worship? Well, in one sense it's a call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's in one sense in its original context it's a call to worship, but no. That's not what it's about and that's certainly not why the Book of Common Prayer used it. In fact, the Book of Common Prayer never calls you to worship God. Uh, the, only the only time the word worship is ever used in the Book of Common Prayer is when it's quoting a psalm. And the psalm was referring to the Old Testament worship of God that happened through the tabernacle and the temple. But never uh, in New Testament language. In fact, all the worship language of the Old Testament is taken up in the New Testament to be applied to Jesus. He is the high priest who makes the perfect sacrifice. He is the temple. His body is the temple. All the, the, the language of worship is caught up uh, in, in Jesus or metaphorically about the life of a Christian. Uh, but we don't 
go to an altar to make a sacrifice. We didn't have a priest to make sacrifices for us on an altar because our altar is in heaven. Our priest is in heaven and we are all priests. We don't actually have priests. Uh, unfortunately, there's a hangover of the word priest, which is a shortened version of the word pres- presbyter, uh, not the concept of a sacrificial priest such as the Old Testament priest. That, that language is all caught up in the gospel, not in church activity, and it's nowhere in the prayer book. Um, surprise, surprise. It came back into Anglicanism in the late 19th century through what was known as the Tractarian Movement, which is why you've got to be very suspicious of anybody who studies at Oxford University. <laughs> so I point that out because it was the Oxford Movement. And so, just a little in-joke there, wasn't it? Uh, for those who do not know where the Dean studied. Um, it, it, it's, it's a 19th century thing. Now, once something is 100 years old, it feels like the traditional old way. But actually, the prayer book is the 400, 500 year old way. That's the real traditional old way. And it never includes this concept of worship. So why Psalm 95? If it's not called for worship, and if worship is not the idea of church in the prayer book, why this? Well, it's because today, if you hear his voice, for the place that it's located in the liturgy, in the Book of Common Prayer, is just before you start your Bible reading. Before we're going to read the Old Testament and the Psalms and the New Testament, let's go back to Psalm 95 and remind ourselves that today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as at Massah in the day in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test. Do not do what they did. And that's why it's the everyday psalm, because every day is today. And so just when you're about to read the Bible together, so let's remember what happened when they led the Bible, how they heard the voice of God, they didn't pay attention to the voice of God, and let's remember what happened to them. Look at the outcome of having hard hearts when the Bible is spoken. I'm about to read to the Bible to you, so just remember what happens when you listen to the Bible with a hard heart. You don't enter into God's rest. It's not the first half of the psalm that's written that they used. It was because of the second half of the psalm. Because ultimately the true worship of God is obedience to his word. That is the ultimate true worship of God. And the first half is the introduction to the second half, namely, be those who obey the word of God. Don't be hard-hearted when God speaks to you. Now, if you've got that right, now I'll start speaking God's word to you, you see. And then they would read chapter after chapter. It's as Jesus repeatedly said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He said, be careful how you hear. It's really important. Now, remember what I'm talking about? The word doing its work, how to hear a sermon. Because there is this teaching in the scripture of the importance of not just having sound pass by you, but listening, properly listening, hearing, not with a hard heart, and so therefore I'll put it the other way, with soft hearts. You must listen. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear, said our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so, in one sense, it's the today psalm. Verse 7b, which is a real, just in the poetry of it, a structural change to the psalm. Today, when, if you hear his voice. Now, this psalm is taken up in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. So if you go across to Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the two chapters are about it. Hebrews chapter 3, the argument has got to the point in verse 6 of Hebrews 3, but Christ is faithful, um, Hebrews 3, 6, but, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. The sign of being the house of God is that you will continue in the house of God. And he then spells it out. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, and he quotes Psalm 95, the second half of Psalm 95, the key part of Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because he wants to say, these people... They were under the wrath of God. They will not enter my rest. Because God is angry with that generation who heard the word out in the wilderness but hardened their hearts, didn't believe, didn't obey and that generation all perished in the wilderness. And so Hebrews 3 and 4 applies Psalm 95 directly to Christians. That's not so surprising. The New Testament frequently does that. But this one, it actually explains how it does it. For it picks up the word today and takes seriously the word today, which is why the prayer book took seriously the word today. Any day that you read the Bible is today. And if you're going to read the Bible today, then this is what you do and, or, and this is what you don't do. So it's the today psalm that we need. So the events of Moses' time become a warning for us today. Now, you can find the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter um, um, 12, no, 10. 10, 1 to 12, where he talks about the following with the Moses and what happened to them happened to them as a warning for us and was written down for our sake upon whom the end of the ages came. See, you might think God was speaking to Moses and his generation for their sake. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no, no, it wasn't for Paul, it wasn't for their sake. It was for our sake. That is, the Old Testament is a Christian book, not a Jewish book. It's actually the Bible of Christians. And so this part, the events that happened under Moses, happened to them and was written down for us who are Christians, who come in the end of the ages. And so he's picking up the Moses events, which I'm not going to rehearse for you tonight, the Moses events, and says, they're the warning for us today that we must not listen to the word as they did, with hard hearts. And therefore, presumably, we must listen to the word of God with soft hearts. We've got to take it on board what God says. But he even takes the argument a little bit further for us. 
because he uses the word today and points out that it wasn't, David, it wasn't Moses, it was David who wrote this. And so he says in chapter 4, David, when he wrote this, was in the land of rest. Now, the, the word rest refers to the Sabbath day, the seventh day of creation when God rested from his labour, but it also refers to the promised land. You see that in the Ten Commandments because in Exodus 20 you're told to have a Sabbath day because God created the world in six days, rested the seventh. In Deuteronomy 5 you're told to have the Sabbath day because you used to be slaves in Egypt and God has rescued you out of that slavery to take you to the land of rest. And so as they crossed the wilderness they were always heading to the rest that they would have from their labours in the promised land where other people had built the houses, where the vineyards had already been planted, where you could sit in the house and have your children and your children's children running around about you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, it's, a, it's the land of rest and you rest from your hard labours in the pleasure of God's rest. Well, Moses and his generation didn't make it in. It was Joshua and the next generation who made it into the promised land and the land of rest. David... Well, he was born in the land of rest several hundred years later. And so David's in the land of rest and yet David is saying today. So if you look down to chapter 4, verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he points a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had given them rest God would not have spoken of another day later on so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his so being in Palestine under Joshua and then down to David was not still being in the land of rest. The rest is what the Lord Jesus Christ brings to us. He brings to us the Sabbath rest because he is the Lord of the Sabbath, if you remember from Mark chapter 2. And we enter into the rest in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the rest that David was looking forward to, that Moses was actually looking forward to. In fact, Abraham was looking forward to a, a, a city that we share, that is the Jerusalem that is above. And so we are in the land of rest when we come into the gospel. And thus today is the day in which you need to enter the rest and you must make sure you're not excluded from the rest. You see, we're still explaining chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. As long as we are in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, confident and faithful, trusting in him, we are entering into the land of rest. But if we pull back, if we disobey, if we disbelieve, then we too are in danger, just as the children of Israel. They got out of slavery, they crossed the Red Sea, they got to the Mount Sinai, they had the manna given, they had all these things, the water from the rock, and yet they did not 
trust God. They did not believe, they disobeyed and so they all fell. Chapter 3 verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now both those passages, the one I alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and this one here in Hebrews 3 and 4 are the passages that say to people that he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You know, beware, don't, don't presume upon your standing. You must continue, because you are his, to listen to his word with soft hearts. And so the prayer book rightly says we're going to listen to God's word now. Let's remember. Let's remember Moses and what happened to his generation. They heard the word but they did them no good because they heard with hard hearts. And remember David pointed out it wasn't just Moses and them. It was today. Today when you hear the word make sure that you listen with a soft heart lest you too miss out on the rest that God has provided for us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's word, and here's a famous part of the passage in chapter 4 verse 11, God's word is living and active. Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirits of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Notice the shift from verse 12 to verse 13. Verse 12 is about the word of God, and then suddenly verse 13 turns to be about God. For as you treat God's word, so you treat God. See, God is truthful. And therefore, if I believe his word, I believe him. If I reject his word, I reject him. And vice versa. If I reject God, I'll reject his word. If I disbelieve God, I'll disbelieve his word. You can't separate God from his word. Which makes sense when you remember John 1, 1, don't you? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was made that was made except was made by him. So your attitude to the Word of God is your attitude to God. And God's Word is not just a kind of menu that you can pick and choose what you want to hear at. God's Word is at work in those who are listening. Because God is at work in those who are listening. So when you come into church to hear the word of God in the sermon, this is actually a fairly significant activity that we're engaged in. And, you know, we can all joke about falling asleep in sermons. I mean, it's as old as the Bible. Eutyches did, you know, and he did fairly dangerously too. I noticed that this building doesn't have any windows for us to fall out of. Um, just as well, because they had the Apostle Paul and they got him back to life and I don't think I'd try. You fall out a window and die during my sermon, I've got, I'm very good on funerals. Uh, but 
We shouldn't make jokes about falling asleep in sermons because what we're engaged in, in the hearing of God's word, is we're engaged with God in the hearing of God's word. How we handle, how we listen to what God is saying is how we're listening to God. And so it's, it's of a different magnitude and order of listening to the news on the car as you drive along or even listening to your children or your grandchildren as they babble on. It's, this is now an engagement with God in the church, in the sermon. Which is why in previous generations and in different cultures, Christian cultures, people went to bed early Saturday nights so as to make sure they'd be awake and alert for Sunday morning. You know, the idea, you go out, as, as many of our teenagers will, and rave around the night and get in at three o'clock in the morning and then roll out to church next Sunday morning when you're still kind of half blotto from what's happened over the night. That, that is a terrible blasphemy. There's a failure to understand what it is you're going to, what the activity is that you're engaged in at this moment. I want to give you a little historical background on this now. Wesley Simeon and Christopher Ashe, which is, amuses me enormously because Christopher Ashe, if he heard I was saying this, would be actually squirming in embarrassment. Uh, Wesley is the 18th century, Simeon was the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century and Christopher Ashe is alive and well living in England. Wesley wrote a, a lovely little piece about how to sing. This has almost nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, this is a little light comic relief for you in the midst of a fairly serious talk. But at the same time, when I thought about how to listen, I thought, oh yes, the, the, our forefathers will have worked this out. And so I looked around and there was Wesley on how to sing. And I'd remembered this one. He's got five points on how to sing. Sing all, he says. That is, always turn up to do the singing. Don't miss singing. Two, sing lustily. That is, sing with vigour. Don't just mouth your words, sing it out with full voice. Number three, sing modestly. For some of us this is more important than others. That is, sing with the rest of the congregation and share in their volume rather than trying to sing over the top of them. Fourthly, sing in time, which is a helpful idea too. That is, again, singing with the rhythm of the congregation so that you're actually contributing to the congregational life. But above all, he says, Sing spiritually. What did he mean by that? Attend strictly to the sense of the words that you're singing and don't let the music become the end in itself. It's the words that you're singing that mattered to Wesley, not the music that you're singing. And so the way you sing spiritually is by attending to the words. This is a little five-point essay on how to sing which, uh, like I say, it's not part of tonight's talk, but I couldn't refuse it. However, Simeon, one of my great heroes as a preacher, he wrote a couple of pages on Take Care How You Listen, which is a quote from Luke 8.18. And he gives an outline of a talk, and I was tempted to use it, actually, and just create the talk around Simeon because he's a great one and I'm not. It's in two sections. His first part is, our Lord's warning we should heed. What's our Lord's warning? Luke 8.18, take care how you listen. 
And he has three points under taking the Lord's warning to heart. First, hearing in an unbecoming manner. That's what you shouldn't hear in an unbecoming manner. He uses a couple of examples of that, like Gallio in Acts 18.16, who paid no attention to what was being said by the apostles. Or being a critical hearer, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where you judge people, I follow Paul, I follow Acolus and so on. Or being a captious hearer, that is a fault-finding hearer, who only listens in order to find fault. They do that with Jesus in many places. They're not actually listening to what he's got to say. They're listening to chip him and trap him in his words. So don't be an unbecoming hearer. Secondly, you must listen, you must take warning because God himself is speaking to us. Now, one of the little problems that you should be having at this point in your mind, and you might have not only had the problem but the solution, Simeon gives a solution. One of the little problems is you say, well, hang on, Philip. You know, we love Andrew. He's a great preacher. But God's not speaking when Andrew's talking. Andrew's speaking. But, you know, does every preacher get up, therefore be speaking God speak? Well, he points out two passages there. Firstly, from 2 Corinthians 5.20, where we are the ambassadors of God, God making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. So in fact, God uses the human voice to make his message to the world. He, he could have done it other ways. In uh, Revelation 14, there's uh, angels in mid-heaven declaring the gospel. So God could communicate that method if he liked, but he didn't. He chose to put it in the mouths of Christian people. We're the ambassadors of God. That's not just people in pulpits are, that's Christians are, when we call upon people to reconcile to God. But second passage he uses is one of the ones I've, I've often liked. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, slightly more obscure passage, but a really important one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 where Paul is praying and he thanks God in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God constantly for this that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is the word of God which is at work in you believers active living word of God dividing soul and spirit you see that powerful word of God is in the mouths of men as they speak God's word. Now I know there's still a problem, isn't it? Every person who ever speaks, are they always speaking the word of God? Well, we'll come back to the, the preacher's responsibility in a moment or two, but the hearer's responsibility is to remember that God himself speaks through preachers. That is how we're going to come in contact with God himself. So the third uh, element of why we should take the warning seriously is because in each discourse, each discourse, he says, increases either our salvation or our condemnation. Uh, he alludes to John 15, but also to the words of the Apostle in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that the gospel is the sweet smell of life, the fragrance of life to those who are being saved and the pungent stench of death to those who are being lost. 
So as, as somebody preaches the gospel, those who are lost, revolted by it. Those who are saved, in lifted and raised up by it and, and, and thrilled by it. And so you must take care how you listen because how you listen increases your salvation or increases your condemnation. To hear the word of God and say rubbish is to harden your heart against that which would save you if only you repented and believed. So the first thing is, he says we should take the warning seriously. The second reason, the second thing he says is, uh, our Lord's caution is we should obey. And he has three points under this as well. We should hear with candor, with, with open sincerity, weigh what is said with an open heart and conviction, receive it with an honest heart, receive with meekness the engrafted word of God which is able to solve your souls. It's James chapter 1 verse 21, James 1 21. Secondly, he said we should hear it with a desire for profit. For the Bible, the word of God, is profitable. It's profitable to make us wise unto salvation in 2 Timothy 3.15 and it's profitable to make the man of God complete equipped for every good work in 2 Timothy 3.16. So you listen to the word of God in order to profit from it. Profit for your salvation, profit for your equipment to be the complete man of God. And thirdly, we should hear with humble dependence on God's spirit. For he points out that God opens the sinful heart by his spirit so that we should pray. And he takes of the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus opened their minds of the, script, of the disciples to understand the scriptures. Uh, how from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms how the Christ is to suffer and to die and to rise again and the forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be preached to all nations. But it was always there in the Old Testament but it was the risen Jesus who by his spirit opened the minds of the disciples to see what was already there. And so we need to pray that the spirit would do that great miracle for us that he did for Lydia in Acts 16, isn't it? How the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel message. Because we're engaged in a spiritual activity when we're listening to the word of God. And that's why we've got to be prayerful about the activity that we're engaged in. Charles Simeon, he was a great one. If you don't know much about Charles Simeon, do find out. He really was a wonderful preacher of God's word. What's it all got to do with Christopher Ashe? Well, Christopher Ashe is a good man too. And uh, anything you see written by Christopher Ashe, if in doubt, buy it. He, he actually is a very careful scholar. He's got a lovely couple of books on marriage uh, and uh, traces through the Bible's wow. views of marriage. Very powerful, very helpful uh, books on marriage. He's got a big commentary out on Job, at the moment, uh, which I, some friends of mine tell me is really good. Have you had a chance to read that one? No, it's a, I hear it's a really good... Anyone read the commentary on Job? Because my friends are raving about it and uh, I always find Job so depressingly hard to read. I, I want to make sure the commentary I'm reading on it's good before I start. You know, and I have enough problems with the book without a bad commentary as well. But 
Christopher Ash is a great one. Um, he's written a book called Listen Up. It was published in 2009 by the Good Book Company. It's uh, 50 pages long and it's about how to listen to sermons. Now, I thought I'd just read Simeon's little essay for you, uh, which I've now summarised. I thought I'd read the book for you, but I thought, well, no, I'll tell you about it and you go find it. Right? It's available on... Uh, well, I, I've got it on my uh, Kindle. I just downloaded it on Kindle. Um, so you can get it from Amazon. He makes seven points uh, and he's got a couple of appendices about it. Uh, I laughed because one of the appendices is called How to Listen to Bad Sermons. <laughs> so I immediately went to that straight first and the first sentence of that little appendices is You most likely turn to this first. <laughs> <laughs> you rotter! You caught me! <laughs> Sprung in my evil ways. So... Anyway, uh, his point is, his points, I'm just going to give you the, sermon, the kind of headings of the topic uh, about how to listen. You've got to know it's the word of God that you're listening to. Secondly, you've got to bow in humility to the word of God, not like the Pharisees who listened but twisted it, looked for the loopholes, minimised what it meant. Thirdly, you've got to be an active listener. James chapter 1, be a doer of the word, not a listener only, deceiving yourselves. Uh, fourthly, he talks about the church needs to listen as the church. I'll take more of that in a moment or two. Fifthly, he says you've got to listen today. And so he gives us Psalm 95, of course. Sixthly, sermons are not for entertainment. And we, we want our preachers to entertain us. We want jokes, we want illustrations, we want vivid applications. No, he's actually there to tell you what God says. And God may not have a joke. Actually, there are some jokes in the Bible, but it may not be a joke. So don't ask your preacher to be a joker but he's telling you what God says and God doesn't joke, right? And you've got to, you, you, we're not there for entertainment. I may say the preaching is, is terrific pressure on preachers to perform, uh, but that's a, one of his amendments to, uh, the appendices. And then seventhly, repentance and faith is the right response. Hearing the word of God is to lead us to repentance and faith. Always to repentance and faith. That's the response to the word of God. He then has these two appendices, how to listen to bad sermons and he's got some really helpful advice as to what to do if your preacher is really bad and the other one is preaching is a two-way communication and so it's how to help your preacher and friends there are ways of helping your preacher there's no two ways about it uh, when, you, when, when I see people look up the passage that I'm referring to that helps me uh, when I see them smiling, when I see their eyes engaging, when I see their, the, the quizzical mind, when I see them leaning forward, when I, it actually, there was a man at the Sydney Cathedral I, I used to preach to, a polymath, he has degrees in everything and, and he has two doctorates in the New Testament studies and so he, he knows more, he's forgotten more than I've ever learnt, <laughs> right, basically. Uh, an elderly man in his 80s, but every time I preached, he was on the edge of his chair, paying careful attention. And when he came to me afterwards, he didn't just say, oh, Philip, that was a great sermon. He'd say, that was interesting about verse 7. I was thinking about that. I know I'm engaging with someone listening to me. So next week when I get up and preach and I see him reaching forward again, blow the rest of you, I'm going to preach to him. I'm talking to him. And he, he brings the best out of me as a preacher. You, see, you, can, you help your preacher 
or your Hindi preacher. Because when I arrived at St Andrew's Cathedral, there were a whole bunch of people that as soon as I started, got in the pulpit, I'd open up, I'd pray, lift up my head, and they'd open their Sunday newspaper, and they'd be sitting there reading the newspaper while I preached. You see? That, that's a tendency to be a, a hindrance to the average preacher, if you get my drift, you see. But they were there for choral music and the free concert, and uh, I was just a little interruption, kind of like a... An, you know, an intermission and they couldn't nick out and buy a chocolate so they read the newspaper instead. Now, you do help your preacher and, and it's a two-way communication and entering into the content of the discussion is really much more helpful than saying, oh, you're a wonderful preacher, I love listening to you. Doesn't really help. If I believe it, it builds me up and if it was true, you would be saying, isn't Jesus fabulous? Because that's what I was trying to tell you. <laughs> if, if I tell you Jesus is wonderful and you come back and say you're wonderful, I don't think I've got through the message. I, I think I've missed it. I had one of the uh, great tennis smashes of my life at the uh, cathedral in Sydney once. Um, this, this lady came out, and a very nice lady, and... Uh, she, she came from Queensland and she said, oh, it's so good to be here in Sydney. Uh, Queensland's a long way from Sydney. You know, Australia's a very big place, let me assure you. She lives about a thousand, uh, yeah, about 800, six, seven hundred miles away from where I live. And she said, I watch you on television on Sunday mornings because there's a, a show that I, I did every Sunday mornings for... Well, it was recorded other days, but she said, I get up early Sunday morning before I go to church and I watch you. And she said, just to be here in the cathedral, to see you in the flesh, to actually see where you make those talks, to, to listen to you in the flesh. It's just, this is the best part of the trip to Sydney because, you, you know, I just love it. She went on and on and on. And, oh, you know, it was all right. <laughs> she was telling me, she said, yes, Sunday morning is my favourite morning. She says, because my two favourite preachers preach one after another. I get up and I watch you and then I watch Joel Osteen. <laughs> I call it a tennis smash. You know, you throw the ball up in order to make sure you really smash it down as far as you can. Someone who can't discern the difference between me and Joel Osteen's, a person whose opinion I don't hold particularly highly. Uh, it just was one of those awful moments at the door of the cathedral of which <laughs> I had many. But many other people who, who don't tell me the Joel Osteen part tell me the, oh, it's wonderful, you're lovely part. Well, I learned a long time ago to politely ignore what they were saying. Because <laughs> if they really thought I was so good, they would be coming out and telling me how wonderful my saviour is. Because that's what I was trying to say. And if I was really successful as a preacher, they wouldn't even think about me. Isn't that lovely line in that hymn, uh, May the Mind of Christ my Saviour? It talks about forgetting the channel and seeing only him. Do you know that hymn? No? May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day. It's a great old hymn. I don't know that hymn. I won't sing it for you because I wouldn't want to ruin it for you. But it's got a lovely line in it. Forgetting the channel and seeing only him. That's what I want as a preacher. And so enter into the content of what the preacher's preaching is the great encouragement to the preacher. And entering into the discussion about how wonderful you are or how lousy you are doesn't help, doesn't improve his preaching.
Okay, so let me tell you what I want to say now that I've told you what all these other Wallers have said. Wallers, you don't use that word, do you? What these other great ones have said. Uh, Waller is a rude way of saying great ones. Now, I want to say, to understand the place and nature of the sermon, you have to understand the place and nature of the Bible. And the place and the nature of the Bible in the purposes of God is that God lives and speaks. The Bible keeps saying that in the Old Testament in contrast to the idols because two things about the idols are they're dead and mute. Dead and dumb. Dumb in both senses of the word dumb. Do you use both senses here? But they're dead and mute. They don't speak whereas our God does speak. And they're dead whereas he's alive. It's just a common way of understanding because in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Because God reveals himself by words. That's how he's chosen to do it. That's how we know his intentions and his plans. That's how we know the meaning of the suffering and rising of Christ. That's how we know of repentance and forgiveness of sins. All by words. All by words. As I used an illustration the other day at a meeting and it's perfectly good for here. All these lovely paintings of our artist here, uh, I just point that out before you say anything else other than lovely paintings, all these lovely paintings of our artist here are explained with little captions because they themselves are not self-explanatory. A picture is not worth a thousand words. Every art gallery in the world there's always little captions to tell you what the picture is that you're looking at. And God does not come to you in visual form in the scriptures. God comes to you in words. Even the transfiguration of Jesus, you know, there he is in all his glory. And Moses is there, Elijah is there. And the disciples don't know what they're looking at. (laughs) They need the word from God. And the word from God is, this is my beloved son. What? Listen to him. Right? In the face of the great two Old Testament prophets, listen to him. So God reveals himself in the the purposes of God. It's all God reveals himself and reveals his purposes for us by words. The place of the Bible in the church is therefore critically central that you need to understand. Because the church is God's people gathered It sounds a little bit boring like that and kind of plain but boring and plain is good sometimes. It's the gathering of God's people. The very word church itself means gathering, uh, assembly, uh, meeting. Um, It's used twice in Acts 19 referring to uh, meetings that have got nothing to do with religion or church. One is the riot that happens in Acts 19 when the Uh, uh, the silversmith is complaining because the idolatry has been put out of practice. By the way, you'll notice how far Christianity has moved. When the gospel came to Ephesus, all the jewellery makers were put out of practice because there was no jewellery made for Christianity. Today, most of the jewellery is made for Christians and when you go to your Christian bookshop, there's the jewellery section. There's some little problem there, isn't there, between us and the first century that Anyway, I won't mention it lest you have to cover up yourself and the jewels that you're wearing. But uh, there's a riot and that riot is called the church. 
uh, beautifully called the church because it says they don't know what to do, which is pretty typical of most churches. Uh, then they say, we'll settle it later in the regular church, which means the local town council, which again has got nothing to do with... Because the word was just a word which meant assembly, meant a gathering. It's not a religious word uh, per se. Why, would, why is it important to have God's gathering? Well, because throughout the Bible, gathering means salvation, scattering means judgment. Now, you think of the Tower of Babel. They're all gathered together as one and they do not want to be dispersed and so they're building the tower that will reach them up into heaven so they can make a name for themselves and God comes down and he divides them and scatters them. You can think when they come into the promised land where at the end of Deuteronomy the great warnings of if you keep the law you will rest in peace and milk and honey and the rest but if you disobey the law all these dreadful things will happen to you and ultimately you will be scattered abroad. And that is the, the dispersion is always the judgment, the gathering is always the salvation. It just runs throughout it. Because fellowship with God and with each other is the precious fruit of, of salvation. Getting together, loving each other. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love for one another living in harmony and peace with your brothers and your sisters and with your father, because that's the one from whom it comes, that is the very nature of salvation. And so it's expressed in us gathering together. So, but how do we gather together? Well, it's by the gospel word. The word leads to the church. The act opposite of the Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, the church gives us the word. But in the Bible, God gives us the word and gathers together the church. It's complete opposite to Roman Catholicism in its understanding. Now that's because within Roman Catholicism, the spirit is replaced by the church. And so it's, uh, whatever the Bible says the spirit does, in Roman Catholicism the church does. And ultimately the Pope does. So, the church is the gathering of God's people. But what do they gather together to do? Now here, most people want to say, worship God. But that's not what the Bible says. I know it's really hard to believe this when you first hear it because all your life people have said, welcome to our time of worship together, together in your church. It's an opening line of almost every church that you've ever been to. And so therefore it's normal to think of it. But when you actually look into the Bible that's not what the church is gathering for. The church gathers together to hear the word of God. Uh, let me show it to you. Go back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, uh, 10 we have the model of the church. Uh, well we have, no, no. In Deuteronomy 10 we have the day of the church referred to. Deuteronomy 10 verse 4 and he wrote that God wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the church. Your translation most likely has assembly or congregation or gathering but the Greek word there in the uh, Septuagint is church, ecclesia. Uh, on the day of the church and the Lord gave them to me. Now, because our Bible translators do not understand the church, 
they put in the word assembly here. But dear old Tyndale, he was a much better translator than most of our translators, and dear old Tyndale, he got rid of the word church completely out of his translation. <laughs> it doesn't even occur anywhere. Because he, he figured that the word church was so corrupted by the Catholicism that there was no point of trying to redeem it. So he just translated it as it is, that is, the word for assembly. And so it's consistently assembly everywhere. Well, Henry VIII wasn't too happy with that. So Henry VIII wasn't too happy with Tyndale. In fact, Henry VIII had Tyndale burnt at the stake. So um, I guess he wasn't too happy with him. And uh, when he got conned into putting out Tyndale's Bible, he wouldn't do it. He changed it uh, just in a few places. And one of the places he played was to put the church back in. And so, but he didn't put the church back in everywhere. So he didn't put it back in places like this. So all our translations follow the tradition of not using the word church here. But it is church. Not just church. It's the day of the church. This is the day. It happens more than once. You'll find it again in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 10. Chapter 9 verse 10 talks about, uh, where are we? Um, and the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with a figure of God and on them were all the words the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the church and the New Testament understood that because keep your finger in Deuteronomy I'm going to come back there in a moment in Acts, 7, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38 uh, Stephen is recounting the history of the people of Israel's rebellion and rejection of the word of God. And he says in Acts 7.37, uh, we'll pick it up, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you another prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the church, ecclesia, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers and he received living oracles to give to us. So Stephen knew that when Moses and the people of Israel all gathered at Mount Sinai and heard the Ten Commandments, that was the day of the church. That was the congregation. You see, there is the model from which we're to understand. Now, what, what do they do in the church? See, it's the, it's the one day in which all Israel, all God's people were gathered in one place. And what they were gathered to do was to hear the word of God. That's what they were gathered to do. And that's what's meant to be happening. So look back at Deuteronomy. I said I'd come back. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I think Deuteronomy 4 is one of the most important chapters of the book actually. It's a, Deuteronomy 4 is a, just put a little asterisk in your Bible and read Deuteronomy 4. It's, it's got so much in it. It's a really important little chapter. But pick it up verse 9. Only take care... And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that you have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. God gathers his people to hear his word. That is the model of church. That's what we do in church. We come to hear God's word. That's what the prayer book is about. 
That's why every day he ga- they gathered the people in the village into the church and they read a chapter of Old Testament, a chapter of New Testament and X number of Psalms. And then later in the day they went through it again. It was the gathering together to hear the word of God. Now, yes, it is in the New Testament. When you come across to Hebrews chapter 12, back to Hebrews, Hebrews 12, you can leave Deuteronomy without your anatomy now. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg no further message be spoken to them for they couldn't endure the order, the order that was given to them. If even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear. See it's Mount Sinai. You haven't come to that but you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not Jerusalem in Palestine, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the church, again it's translated assembly, you lose the plot, you see, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So we're all gathered together as God's people in heaven. They were gathered together as God's people at Mount Sinai to hear the word of God that they didn't listen to, we're gathered to heaven, do you? Why? To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, there's a hymn which has a line about Abel's blood for vengeance calls, but yet we hear a more, I can't remember the words of that hymn, I've got the poetry wrong. Anyone know the hymn I'm talking of? Abel's blood for vengeance. Google it up, Abel's blood for vengeance and you'll find it's a great line of him because we don't come to a call for vengeance, we come to the word of grace. That's what we come to, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to hear the word of the gospel, repentance and forgiveness of sins to all people. That's what we come to. So, the church is kind of different to what most people actually think when you study the Bible. Our problem because we all went to church long before we read our Bibles and so we knew what church was before we looked at the Bible and then when we looked at the Bible we didn't see that it was saying something different to our church and so we just fitted our church neatly into the Bible which is why Anglicans remain Anglicans, Presbyterians remain Presbyterians, Baptists remain Baptists because they've all committed to a church long before they've ever read what the Bible says about what they're supposed to be doing and we won't get past that in our lifetime but the Lord will return and then we'll know what the church really looks like. The Anglican Church, Article 19 of the 39 article says the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that are necessary, of necessity are requisite to the same. That is, most people view church as we all come together in order to worship God. There's this horizontal element and there's this vertical element. Well, if you're going to talk horizontal and vertical, it's not altogether wrong. It's just all back to front. God speaks to his people who are gathered together in order that they might go out into the world to preach the gospel. 
It's right, it's just the opposite direction because that's the gospel, isn't it? Most people think you get to God by climbing up when if you know about the Lord Jesus Christ you know actually God comes down. We, we don't climb up, he comes down. And that's reflected in church. Most people in natural religion go to temples to get up to God. But in the gospel church, God comes down so as to teach his people to go out. It's, it, it's the reverse direction of grace. And so why we gather to church is to hear the word of God. So the place of the Bible is really central to the church, not peripheral. Um, many churches, Bible reading has been reduced down to one, one passage, not two. You don't read Old and New Testament, let alone Psalms. And when they do read them, it's three verses. And you're only reading it once a week. You see, uh, Anglican churches have lost the plot. Well, we know that. You know that because the way the Episcopalian church has just gone off into terrible corruption. But the reason they've gone off into terrible corruption is because a hundred years ago they stopped reading the Bible. Oh, no, they said, no, we read the Bible. But you check out what they read. It's a couple of verses, unrelated to last week's couple of verses. And sometimes a couple of verses from old, sometimes and new, sometimes people have three, but they don't actually do what the prayer book said. Chapter one this day, chapter two this day, chapter three the next day. Chapter They didn't read the Bible. Well, if you don't read the Bible for a hundred years, surprise, surprise, you now call that which is total immorality moral. <laughs> because you've lost the plot, you're not hearing God's word. It's very sad. But you can hear the word with a hard heart. That's even worse, isn't it? So the place of the Bible in the sermon, well, whatever you do in church must be edifying, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. So what the sermon must be edifying, must be building the body of Christ. There's the first thing you'd want to say about, well, that's got to be the word of God. That's what builds us. That's why prophecy is so much more important than tongues. I'd rather have 10,000 words. Uh, what is it? I'd rather have five words in prophecy rather than 10,000 words in tongues. Uh, I often uh, offer people five cents as opposed to 10,000 cents. I've never had somebody take me up on it. I'll give them five, they give me 10,000. The absurdity of it is such, but they still want to speak in tongues that no one can understand. Five words of God that you can understand is worth more than 10,000 babbles. So edifying it must be, but more than that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. There's a little stark word there about our gifts and our usages of the word of God. One day I'll remember that Peter comes before John. 1 Peter 4. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God has applies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Go back and look at that again. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. There's the role of the preacher. He has to tell you what God says. Not what he thinks, but what God says. 
not how he thinks it applies but what God says his task is to speak the very words of God that's his task don't ask him to do other things rejoice when he does that thing you want to hear what God says and you want to tell him that you want to hear what God says and he's got to work hard to see what God says is what he says you see you can't use the sermon time for anything you want because the sermon time is central to the purpose of the church we gather together hear the word of God and here comes the pastor and he stands up and he speaks the latest news and social commentary <laughs> that's not the word of God you've got that on the television I may say this is the first room I have been in which hasn't got television sets going everywhere I, I, you can't go to a restaurant you can't go anywhere in this build, in this city without television blaring at you all the time I don't know if you've noticed this or not I actually went to one cafe the other day and there were four or five television sets in different channels all blaring at the same time while I was trying to eat a meal uh, never mind it's just, just a strange observation as someone who's a weirdo from another continent you know really strange I know what's going to happen in Australia in the next few years and I don't like it you don't go to church to hear political commentary you go to church to hear God's word and so what the preacher is to do is to preach God's word but hey if he's preaching God's word you've got to listen really really carefully haven't you because that is how God does this spiritual work in your life as you listen to God's word you're listening to God so you can't take it light and fancy in fact it would be good to go to bed early Saturday night because tomorrow morning I'm going to meet God in the mouth of my pastor as he preaches his God's word it's, it's a very important interaction that is taking place because well, that is the purpose for which I go to church so what is the place of the sermon in the church? Well it's, it's, it's part of hearing the word of God together with Bible reading and especially the absolution. That's one of the most important parts of a service. We've repented of our sins and now we are told that we are forgiven because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. That's absolutely central to the word of God, isn't it? Of all the bits of the word of God you need to hear and want to hear, that's forgiveness of sins for repentance of sins that's a really important central but it's more than individuals in the church because we're a gathering we're hearing the word together it's the congregation hearing the word of God and so we need as a congregation to think about it together I'm afraid our individualism of Western society or just of sinful nature or I don't know what it is our individualism means I listen to the preacher and I get from the preacher my message today you listen to the preacher and you get from the preacher your message for the day and we both go home happy we've received the message for today but we don't actually talk about what that message is and we don't actually as a whole congregation talk about it and say you know if that's true then God would want us as a church to stop doing this and to start doing that 
We don't ever. You, know, you may in your church, because I've not, you know, I'm a visitor to this land, but I've never been in much in a church which does it much, where as a church we listen to God's word. Rather, we listen as a whole bunch of individuals to God's word. But what about putting it in operation together? For the pastor is the pastor of the flock, not of the individual sheep. Um, there's a word in Greek for sheep. It occurs 39 times, only three of which refers to individual sheep. The other 36, it's always the plural sheep. There's a different word in Greek that refers to a flock. It's used more commonly. And the word for shepherd doesn't come from sheep in Greek. In English, sheep, shepherd. In Greek, it's flock, flockest. <laughs> I know there's no such English word as flockest, but you heard it here. It's a neologism. It'll soon become so popular it'll be on Google. That's the word for shepherd in Greek. It's connected to the flock, not because a shepherd who only has one sheep has a very short future in this industry. <laughs> shepherds don't shepherd individual sheep. Shepherds, she shepherds shepherd flocks. And when the pastor is in the front preaching to the church, to the flock, he is truly the flock's pastor. That is when he is at his most pastoral. Most people use pastoral work to talk about personal work. Personal work is personal work. Nothing wrong with it. Very good, wonderful thing. We all need personal working Christian ministers. But that's not being a pastor. Being a pastor is when you call upon the whole flock to join you in following the Lord Jesus Christ in this direction or that direction because that's what the Word of God says we should do. But we have individualised the activity of sermon preaching. He was speaking to me. No, he was speaking to us. And we need to respond. Not just me needs to respond. I'll show it to you in the scriptures a little bit more in a moment or two. Because what we should do is shape and frame the church, its life and its practices, as a gathering to hear God's word. Both living under the word of God and as doers of the word of God, not hearers only. The church deceives itself when it hears the word of God and then goes home and comes back next week and does exactly what it did the previous week without any reference to what has been said. When have you seen churches changed, not individuals, churches changed because of what preachers have said? See, we don't even think of doing that. But that's the reason the church gathers, to hear the word of God. And if the word of God is saying something different to what we're doing, and I'll be very surprised if it doesn't, then we as a group should be looking about changing what we're doing in response to the word of God. And also in modelling to the congregation members the, the idea of being doers of the word of God. Because you hear this sermon and it clearly says what we're doing as a church is not right and yet we don't make any change. Well, what does that model to us? When I hear the word of God speaking to me, I don't need to change either. But when a church hearing the word of God says, okay, we're not going to do that anymore, let's do something different because that's not right, then individuals start saying, yeah, well, I'm not doing the right thing either. Now, it happened to me. It was forced upon me. I didn't think it... This is not a wisdom. This is a hindsight wisdom. 
totally hindsight, after the event, which makes me sound really, really great, but it had nothing to do with greatness. I was under a terrible conflict in, this, in a particular church and they took up petitions to have me removed. And uh, they said, we don't understand what you're doing, where you're going. wasn't too sure I knew either. And I, I said to them, okay, I'll explain to you from the Bible what the doctrine of the church is. And they said, that would be really helpful because then we can understand where you're going, what it's all about. And I said, I'll do it, but I said, I'll, tell it, I'll only do it under one circumstance because these people really hated my guts and they were, they were out to have me sacked. I said, I'll only do it under one circumstance. You've got to understand that every time we find something in the Bible, we're going to put it into operation the next Sunday. And they said, oh yeah, that's all right. So I said, good. So then I started preaching. And every week, I took hold of what was said last week and did it differently. So, you come to the ministry of all believers. Well, if all believers are ministers, why am I dressed up in funny clothes and given titles? Why am I marked out as a special believer? And you come to the passage about you know, the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, how they have special seats of honour for the, for the, and they love the special seats. So I said, well, why am I sitting up there in a special seat away from the rest of you? when it actually says in the Bible that's what you shouldn't have. That's the sign of being a false church and a hypocrisy. So I wouldn't sit in the special service, sat down with the congregation. Every week we just put into operation what we said. We, we preached through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and talked about not coercing people into giving. And people, yeah, we discussed it and some people said, well, actually I always feel coerced into giving when they pass the plate in front of me. So we said, well... Okay, let's not coerce people into giving. Let's find other ways of making our collection that are more private. Because remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 saying, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right's giving. Do it in secrecy rather than doing it publicly. And so we, we got rid of taking up the offertory plate. Every time we came across something in the scriptures, we talked about it as a church and then put it into operation. Now, it wasn't a great success. Uh, 118 of the 120 people left that church in the next 12 months. 38 new ones came. The 38 new ones who came, and see, it wasn't any wisdom, it came out of a massive fight of people trying to sack me. Right? So it wasn't, you know, oh, Philip knew how to do this. Philip didn't know what he was doing. He was all of 29 years old when he was doing this. So, in other words, it was ancient history. And the new people who came were entranced by a church that was taking God's word seriously. And within a couple of years we'd outgrown the building and within a few years hundreds and hundreds of people came because it was a church that took God's word seriously. We were doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves as a church, not just as individuals. Every week you don't bring about massive changes. Every week you don't you know, face the issue of get rid of the offertory plate. Uh, but over time, as a church, as a way of thinking, it changed the whole way we operated. We had gathered to hear God's word with soft hearts, not hard hearts. And so the key of pastoral ministry is to lead the flock by the word of God. And the point of church is this. So you can see why in the prayer book, every time you read the Bible, do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness, is to be said to you. 
Every time. We say, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I think we should say, hear the word of the Lord and don't harden your hearts. Because that's what the Bible says. And that's what the prayer book says. We do say it in the Lord's Supper, where we preach, where we read through the Ten Commandments. And it's each one we pray. It's kind of monotonous. People don't like it, so they've chopped it out of most liturgies. Right? But we pray, incline our hearts to obey this law. Write these laws on our hearts. You see, that, that's coming out of this understanding of the importance of the Word of God and listening to what God is saying. For there's a terrible danger of hearing God's Word and not paying attention to it. Look at Hebrews 4 with me and then one more passage we've got. Hebrews 4, two passages and then over to whatever questions you want to ask. Hebrews 4, no, no Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do you see the social nature of listening to the word of God? Each of us must make sure that there's no one here who has an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That none of us are being caught up in the deception here. But rather, we are each one of us to exhort each other as we hear the word of God, to listen to the word of God. So, one of the ways to hear the word of God is to turn to your neighbour afterwards and say, well, what do you make of that? <laughs> huh? I was interested. I'd never occurred to them about this. I love to hear that about Jesus. Isn't this wonderful? Are you listening to what he's saying? Because listening to the word of God is a congregational activity. We've made it an individualistic activity. And we have a responsibility to encourage one another, exhort one another. Today when you hear the word of God, my friends, I've been telling it to you tonight, haven't I? What are you going to do about it? I mean, what I've said, some of the things I've said, I, I, I know, have unsettled and disturbed you. And I might be wrong. You need to weigh it up. But you need to weigh it up with each other. You need to be talking to each other about it. You need to exhort each other on the subject. But if it's true, then some of the things we've done in the past, we need to start saying, hang on, why do we do that? Because that's not actually what the Bible says. That's something different. And how would we bring about change? You see, it's a, it's a social activity, Bible reading and Bible listening and sermon preaching. And it's how a man pastors his flock, is to preach. That's why the pastor is the person who should preach in the pulpit, because he does his best pastoral work when he's in the pulpit. He does his personal work in the study, but he does his pastoral work in the pulpit. That's, that's how he pastors. Let me give you one last passage from Isaiah. I always like this one, Isaiah 66. Which, of course, the last chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. 
Remember, the people of Israel, they had the temple of God with all the instructions from God about how to, how to perform sacrifices and who is to do so under what circumstances and the sheep and the oxen and what you to sacrifice. They, if anybody has a claim to be the authentic temple worshippers of God, it's Israel. Not Roman Catholics, not Anglo-Catholics, not Presbyterians, not anybody. If anybody was right, it was Israel in their views of sacrifices and temple worship. I read Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What's the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. You know what they thought of pigs in the Jews, right? He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their souls delight in their abominations. And I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. It's a powerful passage in the condemnation of most church practices today. We gather together to do what we think is the way we should worship God instead of gathering together to hear what God says he wants us to do. And so God looks up to the humble in heart.